the time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. I'm Tracy Silverman. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is a space where we're going to talk about progressive string playing, in particular, rhythm string playing and grooving, because that's, I believe, how we integrate strings back into the popular musical culture that surrounds us. This is the future of strings I'm hoping for. So if you believe in this mission, please subscribe to the podcast and also check out the For the Greater Groove Facebook group, strumboing.com, and follow me on all your social medias of choice. And I am so thrilled today to have as my guest the one, the only, Mr. Mike Block. Woo! He has been hailed by Yo-Yo Ma as the ideal musician of the 21st century. That's a hundred years, people. <laughs> That's a long time to be the ideal musician, I'm just saying. Um, he is a uh, member, Mike is a member of uh, Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble, has been since 2005, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he is also the inventor of the block strap, which has revolutionized cello playing for so many progressive players who want to get out of their chair and get up on their feet. What a wonderful it helps thing. helps me get off my feet, that's for sure. <laughs> and also a professor at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, as if all of that wasn't enough. Uh, I'm sure there's, you know, his bio is a mile long, but I'm just sort of giving you the highlights right here. Anyway, welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here. And, Thank uh, you, Tracy. It's so good to have a chance to chat with you. And uh, yeah, we have so many resonant philosophies and experiences in music and uh i'm very happy to get to explore them here yeah so this is a brand new podcast it's the second episode right here yes i'm gonna try we'll see by episode 10 or 20 how this actually panned out so i'm <laughs> to my future self yeah I, well hopefully i can do my part to help you get to episode 10 at the very least and um, one of the things that I want to do is is uh, have a few little segments in the show here. So the the first segment I'm calling Groove Hacker. The Groove Hacker segment, where we're going to take a groove from a pop tune or from, an, uh, in this case, I think we, we're going to do an original tune of Mike's, um, but from like a band context, from like a rock mm. band, jazz band, or some kind of hip hop recording and see how we as string players deconstruct it, reconstruct it, uh, and um, apply it to our stringed instruments. And how do we get the groove from that record onto our axes? Uh, that's kind of the, really the, the crux of what this whole uh, podcast is about, getting string players to groove, because that is the future, I think. So uh, in that quest, what do we got today? What do we want, want to deconstruct, Mike? Well, luckily, Tracy, you gave me a little heads up to, to find a tune. And uh, 
I thought one of my original songs might serve this purpose because, uh, you know, traditionally when I'm writing songs with cello, I often am starting with the cello groove, right? And the, the chords and the riffs and, and that's, you know, that's how I, I build the inspiration and, and, and the song develops. But in the album I did uh, most recently of songs, I actually reversed my entire process. And, and actually, I started with the band arrangement. And instead of like tracking the, the cello part first and then building the band around that, I actually avoided playing cello in any of the rehearsals. <laughs> and I, I only sang, and I just kind of like came up with chords and feels and, and maybe a few riffs, but I, I whatever I came up with ahead of time, I refused to play on the cello so that the band could really find a group approach and I could really build on the instincts of these musicians who I just trusted and respected so much. I wanted to hear what they what they heard in it, right? And so the whole album developed in that group setting. And I saved the cello parts on the album for overdubs. It, cello was the last thing I added instead of the first. And so then I kind of, it, it was really fun because I got to kick into like this string arrangement mode, you know, and I, and I do string arrangements for all sorts of artists. And, and so for me to actually do it for myself was, was quite satisfying and come up with these multi-layered cello, uh, you know, string parts on top of my own songs. And so in a way, the cello became more of a melodic role on the album than usual, because usually I use the cello so rhythmically in my own songs. But here's the problem, Tracy. By the end of this whole process, I had an album I was very excited about, but I could not play any of my own songs by myself. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, as as the pandemic kicked in, I was like, okay, I got to come up with some solo versions of my own songs if, if I'm going to have anything to play. So then I found myself doing a process that uh, is very similar to the kind of things I do with students all the time of like, you know, at Berkeley, I've got a lot of the singing cellists find me there uh, to, to study. And so, you know, this idea, we, we're starting with a band, album arrangement. How can we reduce it, so to speak, into our solo instrument? And so I had to do that with my own song. And so I don't know if it would be helpful to hear the original uh, before I can kind of talk about how I approached it and, and how people can think about it. But this, uh, you'll hear, this is a song of mine called Make It Right. And it's from my uh, album, The Edge of the Atmosphere. And it features uh, Zach Hickman on bass, Lyle Brewer on guitar, and Dave Brophy on drums. And then you'll hear some overdub cello parts as well. I'll just play like the first verse and chorus maybe. tried to share my thoughts just right I always seem to get tongue-tied when I look in your eyes no paper and pen could show what I intend now I'll never see you again or my ex best friend we could even kind of take apart what we've heard just there and so uh Let's do that. Let's start with that. Yeah, so so even just with this verse in this general groove, like how do I take that onto the cello? Well, the first thing I'll, I'll confess is that the, the album recording key of E flat was not my favorite key to sing in. I was wondering about that. Nor to play cello in, right? And so this is especially when we're singing, 
but transferring anything to our string instruments can take this into account too. Like there might be a key that is far more satisfying on our instruments, right? Than the original key. Now I assumed you put it in E flat because it was the best key for your voice. Because why would a string player, other, you know, put it in E flat? Not that it's a terrible key, but it's yeah. Usually would go to. It was one of those, you know, Tracy. It just kind of happened that way, right? Like for whatever reason, the 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 riffs that kind of became the song. I was fooling around in E flat, and I liked the power that it had at the top of my vocal range. But um, but in performance, uh, I you know, both for cello and vocals, I wanted to not have to be um working so hard essentially yeah. <laughs> so so i i performed it and arranged it uh in the key of c so you know instead of instead of that opening riff in e flat now i'm going uh just taking everything down a little bit so so that's where i'll demonstrate these riffs and so you know obviously there was a, that cool intro riff but just the opening groove um, you know, I had to kind of reduce because uh, at the downbeat of the song, there's like five things happening. I cannot do five things. Um, so, so it's like, um, you know, you kind of have to start creating the band person by person, right? So I, now I start, I set up the groove with the drums and the bass essentially. got like, like this basic little pattern and then on top of that there's um there was that little cello riff like that was kind of like this pentatonic -y riff in the original that now I wanted to put in on top of this bass line right um so hang so on I put it in yeah go I ahead I'm going to just jump in here for a quick sec, just to say, before you go to step two there. Yeah, let's talk about step one. Exactly, because, you know, um, that step one is is magical and difficult enough that uh, sure. I'm going to come <laughs> well, back. You, to Tracy, you tell me how much of a workshop we want to dive into, uh, <laughs> into the weeds. Um, so basically, I am doing uh, sort of a back and forth chop pattern that is... Um, you know, it's actually not one of the first patterns I used and developed with my own chopping, but actually, you know, um, inspired by Casey, uh, who I know you just talked to, um, was kind of a, uh, the impetus for me to get used to this sort of like middle, back, forward, back, middle, back, forward, back, that kind of, that uh, back and forth chop uh, became kind of the core of this groove on the cello for me. So, so, so Casey is to blame for this default pattern. So I kind of get it going over the chords, but the key part of the groove in the band is the anticipation right here, right? So getting like a big up bow accent is part of that, right? And then I've got all these subdivisions. I try to fill it in with uh, with some pentatonic -y riff, and so I ended up doing something not exactly like the album. Uh, and so on top of that, I can go like uh, if I set it up.
So that's kind of like my little intro that kind of right. gives me a bass part, it gives me a drum part, and it gives me that little pentatonic vibe of the cello part. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So so that's like our that's that's our opening scene. That's just me kind of somehow hinting that there's a band happening. Yeah, it's juggling. It's it's really juggling. Um, you know, to, anytime you're making a solo r- reduction, basically, of a larger arrangement, whether it's on piano, guitar, or strings, um, you know, we're going to... The big choice is what to leave out. Mm. Um, and, you know, you have to prioritize because you can only really pl- do one thing at a time, you know. Um, uh, but this illusion of creating several different voices happening, like a drum voice, a bass voice, a guitar rhythm riff in there, all kind of perking along together uh, is where the real magic and the artistry of it happens. Because you can learn how to do a chop. You can learn how to, you know, play a bass line, but figuring out how to prioritize that, how to bring them all together, and then actually physically executing it um, is the art of of the groove nice yeah i mean the, it takes sort of this very subjective creativity to figure out well what do you need in this moment and obviously so much of groove playing is is about keeping keeping something going like the consistency uh is really what we feel with the groove yes. um but then like you're saying like the the most satisfying magic is when you can hear the whole band coming out of one person like if you can imagine and i kind of talk about this a lot you know with students even as we're building solo arrangements because so much of what i do in a solo show is song based that you know using the cello as you know your backing band you really have to have kind of like a split personality where you're very consciously occupying different roles at different moments and and as all the roles you just mentioned um you know are, are part of that. And, and so sometimes, um, in a way that's like why it's in, in a way it feels so natural to then work with a group, um, and, and arrange in a collaborative way, because, um, even as a solo groove musician, you're used to thinking about the interaction of different roles. Yeah. And, you know, you um, mentioned the word consistency. The groove has to be consistent. Uh, this is something that, you know, is is very obvious the first time um, you are support- backing up somebody as the main or only backup instrument, like, you know, like a guitar player backing up a singer. And you're going to have to figure out how to get your fingers there, how to get your bow there, because one of the truths about a groove is that once it starts it doesn't change. It is, you know, it's like it started at the beginning of time and will go to the end of time. And that's what makes it a groove, this sense of consistency. And um, so yeah. singing is a great uh, tool for this because you all, you can only sing one note at a time, right? Um, so what you're sing when you're singing it, you're automatically prioritizing. You're, you're figuring out what is the most important thing to sing. So if I go like, and I sang the wrong bass note again, but um, <laughs> yeah, you got it. So, but that kind of directs me. That's how I do it. I, I I sing it and then just try to imitate kind of what I'm singing. Well, that's so helpful because you know our string instruments are often thought of as single line instruments, right. as opposed to a piano or you know even a guitar. Right? Obviously, we can play chords, but the bow 
is, you know, is designed to play one string at a time, I guess, primarily, right? So even when we're playing double stops and, and chords, it's really one event that can happen on each subdivision. And so, yeah, that's what the singing is such a perfect way into that reduction. Cool. So our second segment. Oh, good, man. I'm glad I didn't have to play that whole tune. I was like, it's early to sing. <laughs> I'll, I'll save you. I'll save you the trouble. Unless you want. I mean, we would love. No, it. please. No, that's what the recording is for. <laughs> Everybody go on Spotify, Apple Music. Go find um, the record is called The Edge, The Atmosphere. And uh, the tune is Make It Right. So our topic today is different rules for classical and vernacular or which means pop music basically um and i wonder what your thoughts are on that because i know you have you know spent extensive time in both of these realms being a graduate of the juilliard school so what are what are the some of the primary things that come to mind when you're like when you're teaching people and you're going like okay you know we're not playing classical anymore you know this is for for a rock tune or a hip-hop tune so i want you to do this and your student might say but that's not what my teacher told me oh Um, sure well, luckily, in that situation, I can just say, I'm your new teacher now. Um, but uh, I think one of the things that separates classical music from many styles is is the groove. And I kind of think, in my own head, I, I think of groove-based music and melody-based music. Uh, and to me, you know, the bulk of the classical tradition is is melody-based music. And, and, and for me, what that means is that whatever role you're playing in a string quartet orchestra, you're following the melody. And if the melodic player's taking time, you know, in a string quartet, everybody like a flock of birds is gonna shift to the left the moment the first violinist takes a little bit of time, right? And, and that idea of, of, of following the melody, the melody is leading, uh, is in stark contrast to so much groove-based music, right? Where instead of listening up, we want to be listening down and it's the groove components which can be one or more people they're actually the ones driving the bus and the melody player may drag may push may float on top of that independently of you know what hopefully is staying together on the groove and so that whole mindset it affects um not just our technique and of the ability to keep a steady groove um, which is not always a part of, you know, our classical goal, um, you know, because in classical music, we're using tempo as an expressive tool and the flexibility of it is, is really important in groove based music. It's a totally different, you know, all of our tools for expression are, are, are changed and, and we're not being flexible with the, with the pulse usually. Yeah. Yeah, I refer to that as the emotional grid as opposed to the mm-hmm. rhythm grid. Nice. Rhythm grid is the drum is setting down. You know, it's the groove. It's the pulse. It sh- should never change, you know, I mean, it, you know, f- for that groove. Um, and in classical music, it's more of an emotional grid. We're kind of like an actor. We're sort of reading lines and, and you know, uh, doing things, playing with that. And, and not. I don't mean it in a derogatory way or in any... It's just a different focus. Yeah. Well, and there's... I think what we'll find in pop music... Uh, and other contemporary styles, uh, you know, it's obviously there's always 
there's an exception to every through line you can look for. Like, but in general, like a pop song, uh, kind of maintains one vibe through the song, and maybe, maybe, obviously, the chorus is a lift, and the bridge is often some sort of opening feeling where it might contrast. But the groove and the pulse is consistent to you know to some degree. And so this idea that when you think of a of a great pop song, you kind of have are struck by like one feeling, like the song kind of is a is one thing uh as opposed to so much classical music which is built on drama and built on contrast and this idea that you're going to end somewhere different than where you started uh and so i mean just you know if if we are relating it to classical music um that what i described with the pop song is actually more consistent with the approach of a baroque composer um and this idea that like one movement of a Bach cello suite is kind of one thing, um, especially as we get away from the preludes, um, you know, the dance movements. And in so much of Baroque music, the whole doctrine of affections approach of like one piece of music is expressing one specific thing. And it's really not until later when we're talking about, you know, classical rom romantic period with the development and, and you know, the, the storm and drawing of Beethoven, where where that I think the 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 drama it gets heightened when the pulse becomes more flexible all you know all the more right so so even if you go back further far enough in classical music you know I do think there's still connections uh, between the goals of you know what one piece of music is is trying to accomplish. I want to um, talk about an another difference, and that is in written music and this idea of reading something note for note off a page as opposed to a chart, which might give you a chord. Mm -hmm. uh, or even just learning it from the recording, right? And and just the commitment to doing things by ears is, like, it's just, for me, that was one of the, the things I've realized on my journey, coming from a classical background, was how much I enjoyed the feeling of, of learning and playing by ear. And the, I felt more engaged in music often, like you know the 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 role of a classical musician learning the notes, and then often then figuring out how they want to interpret it, and kind of like this step by step approach that notated music you know sometimes you know pushes us towards. Um, with when you learn music by ear, it's all it it kind of feels a little more holistic in that you're learning the notes at the same time you're learning the expression, the phrasing, and and, and so I. It helps me often to feel more fully engaged in what I'm playing when I've learned it by ear. Uh, and then to be able to perform it by ear, uh, you know, I, I can tap into that. And, and I think the benefit of that when it comes to groove is so obvious because we don't want to be thinking when we're playing groove. We want to be feeling the groove. Ah, this and is so, yeah, the, the, the more we do by ear, the more it becomes a, a like sort of this mind, body, physical, it's half muscle memory, half musical in, intention. And, and that really benefits groove playing. Yes, this whole idea of using your body to help you with the rhythm and feeling rather than thinking. You know, uh, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm, I'm anti-intellectual about this, but there's but something... go on. <laughs> but I will intellectualize about it to say that there is, um, there is a very different process that happens cognitively when you are, when you look at a page with a, let's say, a complicated rhythm, 
you know, and you're trying to unpack that in your brain and you're counting and you're going one E and a two E and a three E and a four E and a, you know, and you're trying to put all that together. You're using a part of your brain to do that. Uh, you know, let's say just for general purposes, I'm going to say the left part. Um, and when you actually are listening to that groove, or when you're actually playing it well, if you were a guitar player, let's say just playing that up for the recording session of that groove, um, you know, you're in a very different place. You are moving physically. You have to be if you want to be playing rhythmically because rhythmic music comes from rhythmic movement. It's mm. out of the way you're moving your body. If you're moving your hand back and forth, jugga, 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 that's what the rhythm of the music is going to be. So, th yeah. and this whole idea of, of not thinking, but feeling in a physical way, just feeling the, the motion of it almost in a movement way. Yeah. I mean, that's so great. I mean, the, the limitations of, of Western notation are such that the, the primary way it's organized is through math. Right. So, so we, we structure music in 4-4, four, four, and then in America, we're dividing things into whole notes, eighths, sixteenths. And so it, the whole concept of rhythm is a mathematical, you know, problem that we're kind of, you know, trying to decipher sometimes, particularly with complicated music. Um, and, and so, again, that, like you're saying, it's a different part of the brain. And, and so with groove-based playing, it's, it's more about how can I get my body to move in a in a pattern that manifests the notes in the places that I want them, right? And so it's 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 definitely it can feel more exploratory versus like um, something with a right or a wrong, you know, mathematical element. Yes, and this idea of exploratory is another issue of the of the written music. Like you know, as classical players, we're taught to replicate what's on that page as accurately as possible. Um, we're sort of tasked with, you know, bringing the composer's intention to light, and that starts with what he wrote down. But uh, this idea for classical players of being able to add things to the music, mm. all of the, the subdivisions that make a groove a groove, the difference mm. between just a line or a riff, uh, all of that stuff is not written in there. It's like the map view as opposed to the satellite view in Google. You've got all the important stuff but you don't have the real picture of it. You have to create that out of that map of the written notes. And I think that's something that a lot of classical players don't feel like they have permission to do because they're never allowed to do that with Beethoven um, and also don't know how to do it just because it's not in their wheelhouse. So that's a whole other thing that I think uh, I, I find I have to keep telling classical students, no, it's okay. You can add notes to that. You don't have to just play the notes that are on the page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's like a whole, you know, the role of the performer in classical music, you know, is kind of like you're saying, you're like an actor who's interpreting these brilliantly, you know, thought out lines that, that you're trying to recreate. And um, I think something that I'm sure you and I both share is like, the, I think one of the things that I enjoy about non-classical styles is that the performer um, by necessity is, is prioritized in that, like our goal is to serve the audience experience uh, in a very explicit way. 
And so even if I am going out there covering a Beatles song, like <laughs> if I had the, the guts to go play a Beatles song in public in front of an audience that knows and loves it, actually, I can serve that music better by not trying to do it the way that the Beatles did it, but by ex intentionally bringing something new to the conversation and, and, and doing a cover that changes it in some way. And so that's in a way like if we're really thinking about the audience that we're serving, um, that in so many you know non-classical styles um making sure the performer that their voice is connecting to the audience is is more of the focus of of sharing music as opposed to presenting some pre-existing work and sharing the composition for the audience it's a much more personal com uh, performer to audience relationship that that i enjoy uh in so many other styles Yes, very good point. And I'm going to, again, um, amplify that by saying I wasn't there, but it's my guess that because the music that Bach was writing, the music that Mozart was writing, it was all written in the popular idiom of that particular time. And they gave their performers a certain amount of leeway to improvise within that because they understood how to do that in that style, which is awfully similar to what happens today with jazz or rock. Somebody writes a song, gives it, you know, somebody else plays it, do what you want to with it. You know how this style works. Um, I think that's the way a lot of our classical music was written. Yeah, because it's, especially pre-Bach, where, you know, Bach was notorious as a late Baroque composer for notating out the ornaments that traditionally would have been left to the performer's discretion. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's this this trust in the performer versus like I was talking about this actually in the in my guided practice session last week, in the or actually was it this week with improv where this idea that the history of classical music can you know there's different ways to think about it. You can chart it its progression with the increase of control and instructions provided by the composer. Um, and this idea that even though Bach at the time was accused of writing out ornaments in a way that took away from the performer, there's still no dynamics in the Bach cello suites. Right. Once you get to, by the time you get to Beethoven, he's writing in forte, crescendo to piano, you know, and like he's, he's adding more directions. And by the time you get to the 20th century, like Elliot Carter, you've got an accent with a sforzando to like a, a, a swell into the third note. And then there's like at least one instruction provided per note. <laughs> and so it's, it's again this, this idea that the composer's vision becomes more and more the priority. Uh, and, and again, as you're saying, in, in all of these other styles, the, perf the, the performer still has more flexibility to, to find things that, that they want to do in the music. And, and the looseness of the structure um, you know, supports that. Yeah, and I think what's really significant for string players is that, um, you know, string players were in, playing in the style of that time, as I, as I was saying, uh, uh, you know, in the Baroque period, the classical period, they were current with the style. Now, you know, for a string player to play rock and roll, you know, guitar players are functioning that same way, where they they know what to do within that style. But string string playing has gotten so separated from our popular culture that I think this whole idea, uh, once the instrument is a part of it, if you're a guitar player playing rock and roll, you know what you're supposed to do. And my whole hope is that string playing is going to move in that direction and that we're going to be 
uh, once again, an organic part of our popular idiom. Well, coincidentally, actually, I just two days ago, um, crazily enough, put together a string orchestra of 16 musicians to overdub uh, an arrangement of mine on a pop song. Uh, and so what's interesting is is when you're in that mindset, like strings are a part of a lot of pop music. Even like the big song Driver's License right now has, I think, a prominent uh, like pizzicato violin part. But it's it's as, as an overdub. Uh, and and using strings as a melodic texture is a diff is is as common as it is is a different use of our instruments. It's a different mindset than the whole groove based. Like how can our instruments become a part of the core band sound? And and so I think that's sort of like what you're talking about, which is we're not just um, you know strings obviously can serve such a beautiful textural element in pop music. Uh, but how can they become a part of the core band is a different question. Exactly the question. It's when we start playing rhythm. It's when we start playing the grooves that we become organically part of that uh, idiom, of, of that style, you know. Mm. And it's a new, it's something that strings used to do uh, and stopped doing and hopefully will we'll return to. And with that... We are going to move into our third and final segment yes. of the show. And this is uh, modeled after, wait, wait, uh, NPR news quiz is uh, not uh -oh. your job. Uh -oh. <laughs> uh, I call not your gig uh, or uh, AKA wait, what? So on this uh, segment today, we are going to find out how much you know about blockbuster video. Multiple choice. The first blockbuster. Buster Video Store was opened in 1985 in Dallas, Texas, with an inventory of 10,000 titles in two different formats. Were those formats A, VHS and DVD, B, VHS and Beta, or C, DVD and Blu-ray? <laughs> which, which year did you say this was? <laughs> 1985. Interesting. I'm going to have to say VHS and beta. You are right, my friend. Of course. You are right. All, my reference point for that was that the CD wasn't even a thing until 84. So how could the DVD already be in Blockbuster? Not going to happen, Tracy. I thought you were too you young. that by me. <laughs> I thought, you know, you were, you, at 85, you were just barely watching anything at that point. <laughs> All right. Good. One out of, one out of three... Correct. All right. Here's another multiple choice. The last remaining blockbuster video store is in what city? A, Reno, Nevada. B, Bend, Oregon. C, Dallas, Texas. Or mm -hmm. D, Waco, Texas. Those all seem like places where there are likely people who would still be renting VHSs. I'm going to guess Bend, Oregon. You are right again. Yes. Wow. I know the people of Bend. I know what they need. I know what they want. And they want Blockbuster Video. They do. <laughs> they do. And they're actually now in that store having um, people, they're having sleepovers in the store. So you can like rent the store, have a, a, a party in there and like brown. Nostalgic. Have a watching party where you can put Love your it. VHS in the VHS player and... And watch it get jammed and then pick another the one. Millennials will never understand how meaningful that would be. <laughs> okay, true or false? In 2000, 
Blockbuster turned down a chance to purchase the fledgling Netflix for $50 million. I think that's true. That is yeah. true. Okay, here's an extra bonus uh, question for you. True or false? Cinder blocks were originally made oh from coal cinders. True or false? I mean, I didn't know that cinder came from coal, nor the, is there another option of <laughs> to provide cinder. I, I've not really worked directly with cinder in my life, so I'm going to say, yeah, sure. <laughs> you are right on the extra credit. Oh, man. Yes, it is true. In 1913, Francis Straub found a use for the waste product of industrial coal burning in Pittsburgh steel plants and created a mix of cinders and cement that was lightweight and strong, and thus the cinder block. I love it. Hey, how did you get the idea for all these questions? I'm curious. Just off the top of my head. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Well, clearly, you are. you definitely know all things block. <laughs> if if some if I've got to know something, right? <laughs> Might as well be that. Hey, man, it has been a a real joy to have you on the show. Thank you for doing yeah. this thing on episode number two, and uh, I hope wonderful. I can convince you to come back at some point and grace us with maybe you'll get to sing that song or another song on the next show. Well, that's you know, if you make it past episode ten, I would be more than happy to come back, and uh, we can check back up on everything. Well, that is that is definitely incentive enough for me. So, yes. Thank you, Tracy, for inviting me. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, Mike. See you, brother. Stay well. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. <laughs>